It's the Friendly Neighborhood Webhead Podcast. I'm Eric Burnham. With me is Ethan Colchimero, and we are continuing our analysis of Spider-Man Homecoming. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, excited to continue Spidey's first solo MCU movie breakdown. Uh, we get some fun stuff in this half hour. Yeah, no, we're going to talk uh, the second half hour of Homecoming, and then when we get around to the comics portions, we're going to talk about the first time Spider-Man and Iron Man had a little bit of an adventure together. And it's a lot later than either of us thought. But first, we're going to talk Homecoming. Okay, set your uh, Blu-ray players or your digital devices to 30 minutes and 3 seconds. If you're playing along at home, we're going to get into the house party that Peter Parker and Ned uh, visit out in the suburbs. It's Liz's house, and they've just walked in. Who is playing DJ? Why? It's Flash. Flash Thompson, yeah. And this is really the scene in the film that gives us the most insight into this version of Flash. I mean, this this is kind of a radically different Flash Thompson. He's not a jock. He's not a, a muscle-bound bully. This is a much more 21st century form of bullying, kind of psychological bullying. And, you know, you get the impression that this version of Flash is probably very much into cyberbullying. You know, Peter's torment doesn't end at 3 p.m. You know, he, he's got to deal with this uh, all the time. So this scene at the party, Peter is already nervous about going to the girl's home that, that he's got a crush on. He's nervous about the fact that it's this absolutely gorgeous house that is really overwhelming. And... Um, yeah, we get DJ Flash just uh, immediately using that microphone to just blast out ridiculing of both Peter and Ned uh, to everyone in, in the tri-state area who can hear him. Tony Revolori is the uh, actor behind Flash, and he just does a great job. And in this case, a great job means you want to punch him. Ned is leading Peter in and saying, OK, so you're going to change to Spider-Man. You're going to come in. You're going to give me a fist bump or one of those half bro hugs. And that instruction just stood out to me as it was just very funny because it seems like the exact kind of thing that a teenager would go, OK, this is cool. This is legit. This is what I need to see. Absolutely. And I even feel like this is really the kind of thing that you would have seen from Stan and Steve Ditko. Peter trying to use his ability as Spider-Man to find a way to to advance Peter's social standing. Ned is uh, encouraging Peter. And Peter is like, you know, he's having second thoughts. He's like, well, Spider-Man is not a party trick. I'm just going to be myself. And Ned's reaction, no one wants that. And it's the kind of thing that only your best friend could say. I mean, in some ways, it's almost as harsh as something the Flash would have zinged him with. But because it's his friend, you know, even though it stings, he, you know, he, he understands where he's coming from. Yeah, Flash... Um comes back several times and it's that dang air horn sound that he's got at his oh. mixing board i hate the air horn sound it's just, you know and just <laughs> but uh flash's irritation you can see it getting to peter you can see just the the jaw setting and uh and the fact that he just wants to leave but uh, he sees liz and uh you know she's welcoming for somebody who, you know, didn't think to invite him to the party without Ned speaking up. Yeah, and I think this is a moment where um, you really see Peter kind of freeze a little bit in trying to impress her, trying to play it cool. You know, in, in his mind, this is a, a big moment. And then it comes and goes in seconds as she hears something kind of, you know, crashing off screen and, and has to run away. So he didn't really get to have that, you know, meaningful interaction with his crush that he wanted to 
uh, and then immediately we discover uh, an unexpected uh, party guest or maybe a party crasher. Yes, Michelle pops in, and I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I paused it at a weird time, and my brain was going, wait a minute, was she making a sandwich? She addresses Peter and Ned with, I can't believe you're at this lame party. And you're at this party, am I? It's great. She Zendaya just has a wonderful presence, and mm-hmm. she plays this part so well. Um, it is exactly the type of person that would probably not be a fan of Zendaya in the real world. That's what I love about this performance. I mean, first of all, she hasn't done anything. I had not seen her in anything that would lead me to believe that she would have been the right casting for this role. But she's delightful, and she just does such a great job of playing this character who just treats the absurdity of high school as, like, performance art. You know, she's almost like a teenage Banksy. Her attending this party is almost like a performance art in a way, or or just like, I don't know how else to explain it, but um, I love the fact that she thinks the party is lame, yet she's at the party. Does that mean she's lame or that she actually likes being there you know i mean there's this kind of wall of irony and uh self-deprecation she puts up that i think is really to keep people uh at arm's length because you know she probably does have some fear of intimacy and being vulnerable being genuine um and it's it's all those kind of things i think when you see someone who is a teenager who has the humor and the wit and the self-awareness that an older person would have and they're sort of trapped in the life of a teenager until they can go out and blossom these are just all all the wonderful things that that michelle brings and and, yeah i love that observation that michelle would not be a zendaya fan uh, at all the other thing that i was thinking of while you were talking and i didn't think of this when i was watching the movie i think that she went to the party specifically to see peter Mm-hmm. But it's something that she would never dare admit. Mm-hmm. Great I call. like that. I like that a lot. It just, uh, it seems, you know, earlier, what, I'm not obsessed with him? I'm very <laughs> observant. And of course, she heard that he was going to be at this party. And well, that's a good enough reason for her to show up. Why else would she show up at the party? That brings up throughout the film, without getting ahead of ourselves or into spoilers, she winds up in places that she doesn't need to be, that Peter happens to be. And why else is she there? I think you really, yeah, I think you, you nailed a great character observation with that. She, she's there to see Peter. So Peter has been goaded, flashes, taunting. He wants to show him up. Liz, he wants to impress her. Ned, he wants to do a solid to his friend. He's up. He's changing into Spider-Man. He's practicing. Which made me laugh. He's pre- hey, I'm Spider Man. I'm Spider Man. <laughs> I got a kick out of that. And then across the way, somewhere in the distance, he sees an unearthly energy. And hey, man, he needs to go investigate because that's not of this earth. And that's something that Spider Man should stick his nose into. And then we get one of the best sequences of the movie, Spider-Man in Suburbia. I love it. As I've said before on the podcast a few times, you know, my family's from New York. We go back a lot. And people might think from movies and comic books especially that New York, uh, if you haven't been there, is just hundreds of miles of glass and metal canyons that these heroes can fly through and swing from. There's like 10 miles uh, (laughs) in New York that Spider-Man could easily swing from. And the rest of it, you know, especially Queens, 
this would be hard for Spider-Man to swing around this part of town. Like he, he would have to ride a bike or take a bus until he got to uh, areas that he could easily swing in. And I love however many movies into Spidey's cinematic career, uh, these filmmakers finally took the time to just show that there's like a lot of New York that you just can't swing around in. And they get so much mileage out of just Spidey and suburbia, that first visual of him spinning his web with it just nowhere to to connect to uh, was just hysterical. Well, there was a comic strip of Spider-Man in uh, the country. He's on a barn and he just <laughs> he shoots the web out and it goes and it connects to nothing and just kind of sags off into the distance. And they did that here. <laughs> he's he's looking at the field and he fires and the web just zero you know and then it cuts to him running across the field and i laughed so hard at that doesn't he mutter under his breath like oh this sucks or something yes, like that yes he does it's so hysterical if ever there was a time for the spider mobile he gets to where he's going and what do we see we see an arms sale an under the table arms sale with none other than donald glover who we find out later <laughs> is playing Uncle Aaron, that's right. Aaron Davis, the future prowler and also uh, uncle to Miles, I almost said Miles Davis. I mean, technically. (laughs) I know, right? Exactly. (laughs) He is playing Aaron Davis, the future prowler and uh, also uncle to Miles Morales, which is a great nod. There's so many subtle nods in homecoming whether it's you know minor villains being supporting characters or things like that like so many so many characters that they've drawn from who maybe wouldn't be major characters in a film but we still get to see them uh, on camera this was fun also because you know of course uh, famously Donald Glover was kind of uh, talked about, I think, during the Andrew Garfield era. There was a fan petition to have Donald Glover, uh, you know, play Peter Parker uh, in in a Spider-Man movie. So this was, I think, both uh, a great opportunity to bring a super talented actor into the cast, but also kind of pay homage to the connection between Donald Glover and (laughs) Spider-Man. Our two um, members of Vulture's crew trying to sell some tech, some high tech uh, weaponry to to Aaron Davis, some of which uh, he's not the target demo uh, for some of these tools. It's a little bit more uh, than he wants. He's got, you know, one of the funniest little uh, throwaway lines as they're showing him what these weapons can do. It was uh, how to go something like, I just want to rob somebody. I don't want to send them through time. <laughs> and I kind of wonder, Donald Glover being Donald Glover, if any of this was an ad lib. Before we um, move on, I want to talk about the two shockers. One of them has, you know, the quilted arms, the yellow, the brown jacket that is reminiscent of the shocker costume in comics. And it was a dodge because that costume was worn by Herman Schultz, who was mm-hmm. played by Bokeem Woodbine, who was not the guy in the jacket. The guy in the jacket, the character name uh, that was in the credits was uh, Jackson Bryce, which is the secret identity of another classic Spider-Man villain, Montana of the Enforcers. I didn't know that until I was looking up, you know, details (laughs) for this podcast. And I'm like, holy crap, they got one of the Enforcers in there and I never knew it. That's awesome. I never knew it. If you had asked me if Montana had another name, I would have said no. So I'm a little ashamed. It delights me that they found a way to get one of the enforcers in the movie. The thing that bums me out is I I hope that doesn't mean that we would never 
see the enforcers, you know, in a movie, because I think the Tom Holland Spider-Man era is really the one that would be the most fitting for the enforcers to to make a, an appearance in. I'm, I'm going to put this out there right now. Taron Edgerton as Fancy Dan. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Just put him back in the uh, the Elton John costumes. Now, the van that uh, our shockers are driving, I didn't notice this right away either. I did notice that Aunt May's license plate was a nod to Amazing Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, Amazing Fantasy. But the shocker license plate, the van was MAR4667. And I said, that can't be a coincidence, not no. after Aunt May's license plate. So I looked it up. March 1967, Amazing Spider-Man 46, first appearance of the Shocker. There's just a lot of subtlety, uh, which I appreciate. There's a lot of things that when I watched this movie for the podcast, it was probably the fifth or sixth time that I had seen Homecoming uh, and was still finding things I had never picked up on before, which is pretty remarkable. So, yeah, they're trying to upsell Aaron Davis with uh, some interesting gadgetry. I really like when um, they mention climbers and he immediately gets excited. The prowler and, in the making. That's right. And uh, Peter is watching this. He's kind of stuck to a uh, the wall of a bridge. And then Ned calls him and Peter, you gotta turn off your ringer. 100%. It was just the most annoying, you know, obnoxious ringtone too. Now, they hear that and they immediately think... Uh, Herman and uh, Jackson think that Aaron is a cop. He's setting them up and they pull a gun on him and he's in trouble. Peter being Peter can't let that stand. So he, he jumps into the light and say, if you're going to shoot at somebody, shoot at me. And what a Spider-Man line. He does web the gun and pull it away. Once the gun is gone, they do the sensible thing and they run. This really tees up that kind of suburban action sequence. You know, Spider-Man has to chase these guys and he doesn't have the benefit of you know, tall buildings to swing from. So, you know, now now the chase is on throughout uh, the suburbs. He gets pulled behind the van for quite right. a distance. And I wonder, you know, if he'd just planted his feet, maybe he could have, you know, stopped the van, but he, he isn't able to plant himself. Eventually they shake him. And not only do they shake him, I want to get this in before we forget. Yeah. They're arguing over calling the vulture. And Herman eventually does put in a call to say that they're being chased. So... Spider-Man is webbed to the van. They eventually shake him. And that's where you were going. The <laughs> the epic chase through the suburbs. Yeah, they uh, they drag Spidey, which looks and sounds painful. Uh, it also leads to one of my daughter's favorite lines in the film, which is just as he's getting dragged around. And he goes, ow, my butt. He gets, you know, smashed into a address post, a, a brick address post and and breaks it, um, you know, which just kind of, again, shows his power level that, that he's denser than a brick address post uh as he tries to uh navigate through the different homes and taller trees uh we get a wonderful homage to not only i mean specifically it's a ferris bueller homage um we see spidey running through different backyards and tree houses and crashing into things um, and at one point, you know, he passes a family uh, having a barbecue outside and he says, you know, smells delicious, uh, which is, you know, a, a nod to um, uh, Ferris Bueller. And we even eventually see that on a TV at another house. Great uh, movie. That- yeah. He shouts as he goes, because they couldn't be subtle. Right. The audience <laughs> might not get it. So let's right. throw the meta joke in there and have him passing the movie. One of the things the MCU does so well, and this is no secret, is that they take an opportunity with each movie to bring different genres into the MCU. 
it's almost like the MCU is the primary genre and then there's subgenres. So it's like, hey, let's do a classic World War II war movie with the first Avenger. And then for Winter Soldier, it's going to be a 1970s paranoid uh, thriller. So with Homecoming, they were very clear in uh, as the movie was being made that the whole thing kind of started with the idea of like, what if we had been able to hire John Hughes to make a Marvel movie. Oh, absolutely. And now that you say that, this version of Flash Thompson feels so much like a John Hughes villain, you know, upper class, mm-hmm. kind of a jerk. <laughs> the only thing that they could have um, possibly done to make him more of a John Hughes villain is to use the de-aging CGI and bring in... James Spader? Thank you. Thank you. Bring in James Spader. Bring in Ultron. De-age him and have <laughs> him be Flash Thompson. That's the only possible way. Mm-hmm. that this could have been more John Hughesy, But, uh, yeah, no, so Peter is, he's just demolishing these backyards. He pulls down a treehouse, which made me wince at how poorly it was constructed. <laughs> right. um, he scared the life out of those girls in the tent when his lenses started wigging out. He takes to the rooftops, he sees the van, he's finally going to get them, and then, this was a great moment in the theater, Vulture just swoops in and grabs him right out of the air midly. Oh, yeah. The other thing that was cool about it is, He doesn't say anything. He doesn't banter. He just flies straight up. And I'm like, what is he going to do? (laughs) Is he going to just drop him? Um, It doesn't indicate what he's going to do is if he's going to, you know, just fly him up and and fly him away. Because not only is Peter chasing after that van, but I mean, should we just get into the spoilers? Sure. Why not? Peter's in his neighborhood and that's got to be concerning to him. So he flies him up and and to get away from the neighborhood and with the altitude Peter so parachute that he didn't know he had deploys from his suit and kind of pulls him away from the vulture and he fortuitously drops in a lake what's really harrowing about that scene is that you know the 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 shoot deploys but because peter is sort of underneath the shoot it never really stops his fall that much you know he kind of falls into the shoot which uh you know, negates the the way that they're supposed to work. It's not catching air. So thankfully, he does land in a lake. Otherwise, you know, it'd be one squashed spider. That's right. And then seconds after he lands in the lake, zoom, Iron Man shows up. You know, I like Peter. Do you have a tracker on me? Yeah, I put a tracker on you. I put a lot of things in that suit, <laughs> <laughs> including a heater. And then, you know, that's a good joke. Um, I liked this because... Tony's, it's just the Iron Man armor. It's being remotely accessed. Tony is in India. He's got Wi-Fi. He's talking to Peter over a signal. And uh, I mean, that's just very, it's very Tony Stark uh, from the MCU that he would be doing this remotely. We you talked know, this about- is really the first time since Iron Man 3 that we saw Tony controlling armor that he wasn't in. I'm going to say that you're right. Now, Tony is yelling at him through the Wi-Fi, and uh, <laughs> Peter is finally getting out about the alien tech. You know, other people can handle this. The Avengers? No, this is this is uh, below their pay grade. This is not for us. You know, he's, he's going back and forth with Peter, and it becomes clear through the conversation that all of the reports that Peter has been making to Happy, even though we wouldn't think that Happy is listening to them, they're getting back to Tony because he says, you know, why don't you just keep helping like the lady with the churro? Why would I tell him about the churro? It cracks me up because the only link that we had to the lady through the churro was one of Peter's many voice messages to Happy. Absolutely. I like that moment because it says, you know, they are listening. They are keeping an eye on what Peter's doing. Nothing has happened that they 
felt like they needed to address. But that doesn't mean they're not listening. I, I think, like Peter, I had assumed, Happy's not even reading these texts. He's not even listening to these voicemails. But they are getting back to Tony. And one thing I thought was really interesting is that this interaction kind of helps level set Peter in a way, in the sense that the vulture is a little bit more than Peter can currently handle in terms of how far along he is as Spider-Man. But it's also not something that the Avengers really need to address. It kind of gives Peter something to work up to. I liked specifically that Tony uh, asked him to be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I like that, uh, you know, Tony is telling him, sit this one out. This is more than you can handle right now. And, you know, Peter's still just desperately wants to be an Avenger. He thinks he hit the big time. You know, this is, he sang backup one time and now he thinks he's in the band. He's not ready for this world yet. There's also the fact that Tony just simply underestimates how much Peter feels responsible for helping in any way that he can when he sees something is wrong. I mean, in as much as Tony is a hero in the MCU, I think that is alien to his character. I did like that um, in this conversation, he is pushing Peter just as you were thinking Mr. Delmar did, to go to college. He needs to start thinking, never too soon to start thinking about college. I got some connections at MIT, and I really, I liked the image of Peter going to a school of that uh, of that level and being able to go just because he's got the smarts to be there. And, you know, one word from Iron Man, never mind, never mind the tuition, just just a word, and, you know, he'd, uh, he'd get in. And I really liked that line of thought because, well, I, I like, the notion that Peter's brain gets rewarded despite his career as Spider-Man. So I liked that. And then just in the middle of that, Tony, end call. (laughs) He disconnects. (laughs) And Friday is the one who, you know, Peter's still talking to Iron Man. And Friday, just the the voice comes out, Mr. Stark is no longer connected, you know, and then off off the suit flies. That cracked me up more than it probably should, but uh, I liked it. Now, uh, Peter has had a heck of a night. He needs to check in with Ned. He calls him, and uh, Ned says, you know, maybe just don't uh, don't come back. I guess we're still losers, and, you know, cuts to Flash. When I say Venus, you say Parker, and then the crowd is into it. I forgot to mention this earlier, and I'm circling back just because I thought it was funny. When Peter is chasing the bad guy, Ned calls him in a panic and says, Peter, where are you? The hat isn't working. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and I love that so much. It cracked me up that he's he's panicking about the hat not working. So I like Peter that Ned just stays a teenager throughout the whole thing. Like, obviously, he doesn't know where Peter is, but it really just shows how much Peter is dealing with that's just out of the ordinary because the biggest thing in in Ned's life right now is the fact that the hat he's doesn't at work. A party and and he's he's crapping out. That is the end of Peter at the big party, and we cut to the Vulture's lair. And uh, this is a great scene. Uh, Vulture comes back, and he is angry. He's angry that he had to deal with Spider Man. He's angry that uh, things are. A little bit out in the open because he wants to stay under the radar. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He wants to just keep being too small for the Avengers. And he's dodging the Tinkerer's suggestion for new stuff for the big job. And he's like, no, I don't want to do the big job. I'm happy with the smaller jobs. Then (laughs) the Shocker comes back. And I love that uh, the Vulture is just mocking him. You call yourself the Shocker. (laughs) 
<laughs> I like that. You know, like, what is this pro wrestling? Beautiful. It's funny, too, because, you know, you live in a world with Thor and Iron Man and Captain America. You know, it, it's funny to think that you wouldn't, if you had some kind of high tech, you know, gear that you wouldn't somehow come up with a name for yourself and a persona. Um, it's a great line for Tombs because this is still not his world. He's still living in that world that he grew up in where things are a little bit more cut and dried. You know, he's very much a meat and potatoes guy. And uh, he is not putting up with Jackson's devil may care attitude of like, you know, who cares if I get noticed because I'll just shock him anyway. <laughs> and uh, Tombs is not having that. He is irritated with it, says, uh, I can't afford to have you here. And then... Jackson does the thing that he shouldn't do. He threatens Adrian's family. What would your family do if they knew how you were really making your money? And that's just not the thing you want to do. It was established in the first scene. We talked about it. Adrian's got a little bit of a temper. Adrian really doesn't take well to people challenging him and his pride, like the damage control employee who uh, who got cracked in the jaw for mocking him about overextending himself. And um, he's not going to let Jackson get away with it. Uh, he says to the Tinker, does this one work? Tinker says yes. And he blasts Jackson and basically he disintegrates him. And <laughs> Right. The Tinkerer does try to stop it. Uh, moments later, everything but the shocking gauntlet uh, is pre-blip ash. It's great because he's surprised. He's like, isn't this the anti-gravity gun? No, that's, <laughs> that's that one over there. But he's not too upset because either way, it solved his problem. We are now at 42 minutes into the movie. Peter got one of the left-behind alien artifacts from the uh, run-in with the van, and he's trying to check it out in the school's shop. That shop teacher, they could have spliced him in from a documentary. I mean, I, I feel like that was definitely one of my educators from my childhood. Yeah, like there was a, uh, a, a sound of something dangerous echoing through the shop. He didn't even look up from his book. He just said, you know, keep your hands away from the blades or something like that. I may actually be remembering a teacher that I had in my own shop class. But either way, you're right. The, uh, the truth of it was a little creepy. Um, but they're looking. They're they're trying to figure it out, and uh, Ned shows that he's not an idiot either. Oh, look, it's connected to that. Brilliant kids, exactly. So, you know, they're walking through the halls of school, and they find that uh, the bad guys can track the tech because who's walking down the halls? Why, it's Herman and an underling. Why else would they be at school? Peter, um, Peter's, you know, worried about that, but he doesn't necessarily uh, think that it's right to turn to Spider-Man. He's, you know, hiding around the corner watching them and saying that he's going to follow them and check out what they're doing. This was another good comedy beat. Um, they're right in front of a window and Ned watches Peter go and then he sees that somebody's watching him through the window. The kid just yells him, what are you doing? You see that kid a few times throughout the film um, and he's got just a great humor to his body language and the way he interacts. Um, and yeah, this is a, a real fun moment. Peter uh, follows the bad guys as they're looking around in the shop. Uh, Herman notices that uh, there's a little wiggling chair. So, you know, hey, there's no breeze in here that's going to move a stool. I think I'll take a look around. He doesn't see anybody. And uh, Herman decides to leave. Here's the thing that surprised me. I know it surprised you. Something that I never thought I would see in a Spider-Man movie. He shoots a spider tracer. Oh my goodness, Eric. I had the biggest geek out moment in the theater. I loved the, the misdirect. I mean, they both look up to the ceiling and you're like, oh, they're going to see Pete on the ceiling. But he is, you know, sticking under one of the tables, which I think is kind of novel. I don't remember ever seeing that. Um, so I thought that was really neat. But then he extends his arm and gets into the sort of classic 
web shooter, um, you know, finger pose. And instead of a web flying out, uh, a tiny little spider attaches to, I think, Herman's leg and slowly crawls up. So, I mean, you know, the, the classic spider tracers from the 70s and 80s comics, I mean, they were just a red plastic or metal shaped spider. They didn't move. So it's a great sort of 21st century Stark update. Although and, in my head canon, I like to believe that Peter had something to do with making the spider tracer, that it's not all just Stark tech, but um, whatever the case is, seeing the spider tracer just gave me absolutely the biggest nerd thrill because it's one of those things, like the spider signal, never thought I was going to see in a modern, serious take on these characters. Another thing I liked about the movie spider tracers is that they actually worked in a way that made sense. In the comics, they're just tuned to Peter's spider sense, which that really doesn't give you a whole lot of range. He's just got to kind of go all around any given area until he starts to pick up on something. And it's just, it's a little too dicey. It's a little too dodgy. But the movie Spider Tracer, it has a little GPS signal and they can follow it, which is exactly what they do. They find out where the bad guys are going. Not to New York, not to New Jersey. No, they're going to Maryland, which Peter realizes is not too far from D.C., Peter rejoins the um, academic decathlon, and I loved it because Flash, no, he can't just come back, Flash, or back to first alternate. That was right. great. It was a little <laughs> bit of a revenge for that air horn. Peter rides the bus right on down to DC with his class. It passes a sign that says Tri Skelly and Cleanup, which is the mess that was made in Captain America the Winter Soldier. When I saw it, I was like, why would they be in Maryland? You know, and then of course you realize that that Triskelion, there must be tons of stuff that like Toombs's crew could leverage and repurpose. Oh yeah, alien stuff, Hydra stuff, shield innovations, all kinds of stuff that they could find and uh, make use of. As you said, another thing that I liked, Happy immediately calls Peter. Hey, it says uh, you're leaving New York. What's going on? Peter, you know, explains and says, Hey, you know, I really don't like how you're following me. You're tracking me without my permission. That doesn't feel right. Ned holding up the spider tracer signal. <laughs> and Peter, look, that's different. That's different. He uh, makes his excuses to Happy and, and Happy's satisfied. And uh, we move on down to DC. And, you know, we've talked about this. I like that the uh, MCU movies have been kind of uh, spotlighting. Spider-Man in other cities. And I know people only want to see him in New York. Right. We got 12 hours of Spider-Man in New York between Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. And I just, I like the change of scenery for Peter. It feels like he's in a bigger world, which being someplace that he's not as familiar with, being away from New York, it feels like it highlights the uh, the need to grow up. There's a line in the beginning of this movie when we're seeing Civil War from Peter's perspective and Happy says, it's your first time on a private plane? And he says, my first time on any plane. Peter being brought into the world of the Avengers and the MCU, it's bringing him into a bigger world, you know, not only in terms of scope, but also just geography. Uh, and the fact that um, we're seeing him outside of New York, we're seeing him outside of his element, uh, you know, geographically and in scope. Um, so it just makes a lot of sense that when we do see him in, in these two solo films, we're seeing him in situations that, you know, we haven't seen him in before. And I think it was also really on Marvel. They rose to the task, but they understood. People had legitimate questions. Why are you telling Peter Parker's story a third time instead of bringing in, you know, Miles or a female spider character or 
Why not have him be a 35-year-old married high school teacher? Now, when they get to the hotel in quote-unquote D.C., I'm watching the movie and my head's kind of cocking to the side like a confused dog. And I'm saying, you know, I think I stayed in that hotel. I did stay in that hotel. That's the hotel they put me in for Dragon Con. It was kind of surreal to see Spider-Man running around hallways that I've run around. And where where is that hotel? Uh, that is in downtown Atlanta. Peter and Ned are in the room. They pulled the suit apart to remove the tracking chip so that nobody can keep tabs on Peter. And they discover training wheels protocol. Obviously, these kids are super smart, but it did sort of seem surprising to me that Ned could sort of reverse engineer Stark protocols and turn things on and off. But I mean, I guess it just really does show how tech savvy they are. I also really like the moment of um, Peter kind of whining, which is very comics accurate, (laughs) non-brand, whining about being treated like a kid. And Ned very astutely says, you are a kid. Still against his better judgment, Ned acquiesces to Peter's request to turn off the training wheels protocol. Peter is sneaking out to go check out the vulture's lair, and he runs into Liz. And you know, Liz is flirting with him. That is unmistakably flirting, which I don't think Peter expected in any way, shape, or form. She invites him to go hang out at the pool. At that point, we see Flash run past Peter and, you know, smack him on the butt. And I'm like, okay, he's that guy. Um, So yeah, Peter, uh, Peter is invited to go hang out at the pool. And it has a nice scene. He's watching them from the skylight down in the pool and just has the weight of the world on his shoulders. It's written all over his face because he knows that he can't go and do what he wants to do, hang out with Liz. When he has to go check out the vulture's lair is Spider-Man. And that is, I mean, it was it was a, a wordless scene and it was so pitch perfect and it was so Spider-Man. And, uh, you know, I was happy to see that kind of stuff make it into the movie. One of the most classic tropes from the very beginning of the comics, that moment of Peter finally getting a chance to go on a date with a girl that he has a crush on only to have it interrupted by something that he has to address to Spider-Man. Of course he's going to choose protecting people, helping people, stopping crime, but it really costs him. And uh, they do it in a way that, again, is organic and feels right. We feel for him, but he's got great power, so you know he has the responsibility to go track these guys down. Now we go on to one of the more divisive elements of the film. Training wheels protocol being removed unlocked all of the advances in Peter's suit, including 500 different combinations of available web shots and an AI of his own. They included this in the movie because in the classic comics, Peter is constantly having an internal monologue. You see him just overthinking, basically, and he can't stop because he's neurotic. But you can't fill the movie with Tom Holland talking to himself. So they gave us a voice for him to talk to, obviously, when he's not trying to be stealthy. But it just allows him to have the same feeling of that overthinking, neurotic, talking through his problems. It gives him another person to talk to, which isn't a person at all. It's Jennifer Connelly, who is the wife of Paul Bettany, who was Jarvis. It's a nice bit. I know you wanted to say that, but I just rolled it. (laughs) No worries at all. Yeah, I really appreciated the nod to Tony's original digital assistant by having uh, Paul Bettany's wife voice the role. Not to mention Jennifer Connelly is a fantastic voice actor. Anything she says is going to sound extremely pleasant and appealing. Um, 
One thing that I thought was really cool was now he has unlocked Karen's ability to map out a, a GPS route to the spider tracer. We were talking about this before. Uh, I still say that Peter's suit might be more advanced than the Iron Man suits because the Iron Man suits their machines. They need to give Tony super strength. They need to fly. Peter's is fabric, right? And it still has the AI and it still has a bunch of other gadgetry, extrasensory perception, and all of those ridiculous web combinations. Uh, You were telling me something about that. Remind me. Because I don't want it to get lost in the shovel, and we went past it before. Remind me of your insight on the web shooters, please, Mr. Colchimero. Um, Peter created these web shooters, which Tony found super exciting, is super interesting to Tony, the fact that this kid created something that maybe Tony couldn't have created an adhesive like that. He certainly wouldn't have thought to. But what that did was it gave him a jumping off point to take something that Peter made that was you know, revolutionary and novel, and then take it to the next level in a way that only Stark could. Um, so I think that's another kind of neat thing that I enjoyed about the suit was that he was able to sort of start with Peter's innovations and then go from there. Uh, we'll we'll skip ahead a little bit. Peter um, sees the vulture going for one of the trucks hauling detritus from the Triskelion. He uses his technology to break in. He finds some good stuff in there. And uh, <laughs> Spider-Man addresses him in a way that Spider-Man should and in a way that none of the other Spider-Man could make work. He calls Vulture Big Bird. Hey, Big Bird, that doesn't belong to you. And you know, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man tried to uh, throw some funny nicknames at the Green Goblin and uh, Andrew Garfield was just very uh, sarcastic. And you know, I just can't see them making a Spidey-ism like Big Bird work in the context of their films but here comes tom holland and son of a gun that worked you know it's not even a big moment like i think you know the garfield films really you know knocked on the door and was like hey everybody we're doing humor we're doing quips this is the quip time whereas this just feels genuine it feels again i say this a lot about homecoming but it just feels super organic now uh the vulture doesn't hurt him but he does lock him in the uh the truck he turns off the little uh dimensional displacement device that allows him to sneak into the truck without damaging it. He turns that off so Peter is trapped in the back and knocks himself out by leaping into the roof, gets a little bit of a concussion, wakes up in the damage control vault. It shows his strength again here when he bursts out of the container and just the metal twists and rends as he just blows the doors off, quite literally. Literally, Um, yeah. I mean, this is the kid who could stop a bus. And I do appreciate, you know, when the movie takes those times to show just how powerful this kid is. Yeah, so Peter is locked in this lab. It's got a time lock on the door. And uh, this is 100% a callback to the first issue of Damage Control. Spider-Man is stuck in the head of a giant robot. He webs up a hammock and just lays and waits to get released. Uh, Peter is locked in the Damage Control vault. He webs up a hammock and he's laying there waiting to get released. That's when he starts talking to his... uh, suit AI and decides he needs to give her a name. And that's where Karen comes in. Is there any reason for Karen that you know of? Not that I can think of. Like I couldn't think of a, of a comic book reason or an homage to somebody from Marvel. Um, I do think it was kind of funny that it kind of predated the, you know, use of the name Karen as, as kind of a way to call out somebody who's not aware of their own privilege. Um, if any of our listeners know, 
if there's an Easter egg to the name Karen, you know, definitely hit us up. Peter goes through his refresher tutorial. He finds out he's got web grenades and all these other things that he can do. He talks to Karen about Liz and how he feels about her and why he can't tell her his secret. And he just babbles on and we get the sense through the editing that he's been there for a couple of hours. But when he asks Karen how long he's been in there, 37 minutes. We've all been in that situation, whether you're at work or the DMV or, or someplace you don't want to be and you, you're not looking at the clock and you think, OK, this has been an hour and then it, it hasn't been anywhere near that amount of time. But I think that's even more unique to teenagers. Well, you know, when you're a kid, summer seems like it's years long and heck, right. Christmas Eve to Christmas morning can seem like uh, forever as well. So Peter decides that he needs to get out and He's showing his smarts again, man. He's working the electronics for the gate. Karen is giving him advice, but he's still doing the work and realizes that they're going to have to try every single combination of codes to uh, get the gate up and open, which uh, I really like that. You know, I, I feel like another thing that Stanley and Steve Ditko put in those early Spidey comics was really showing that Peter a lot of times would use his knowledge of science to augment what he was doing as Spider-Man. It wasn't just the strength and the speed, and the webs. So I especially appreciated the fact that he got out of there with a science calculator, not with webs and strength. Now, Peter, obviously, he gets out too late to get back to the hotel and get to the academic decathlon and compete. So Flash is back in the mix. Michelle was the one who ultimately gave them the winning answer and uh, brought home the championship. and. I just love she has this serious look. She gives the answer. Correct. They win. And then just the smile on her face. It's bliss. It, it's just it's such a wonderful smile. Also, I want to take a moment to make sure that we mention that Karen lets Peter know that the glowy thing is a Chitari bomb. Yes, we can't forget that. Karen does tell him the glowy thing is a Chitari bomb, the thing that him and Ned were working on and the thing that is in Ned's pocket. It's inert unless it gets activated by radiation, which is an important message that Peter wants to, you know, desperately get to Ned. Absolutely. So that gives a little bit of a ticking clock for Peter. And uh, off he's racing to get back to keep Ned from blowing up even accidentally because, you know, radiation, <laughs> cell phone possibly could set the thing off. Who knows? But uh, Michelle is the champion. The next thing we see is uh, the class. They're taking a... You would think that two of Marvel's biggest comic stars would have met before 1973, but that was not the case. Iron Man and Spider-Man didn't get together for a comic book length adventure until Marvel Team-Up number nine, which was the first part of a three-part story called The Tomorrow War. Iron Man only appeared in the first part because Marvel Team-Up's whole gig was that Spider-Man teamed up with a different character each issue. And they held to that even when the storyline went for longer than one issue, as this story arc did. The Tomorrow War ran until issue 11, and Iron Man was only in there for issue 9 and a wee bit of issue 10. It's an interesting way that they met. So uh, there are earthquakes in New York City, which is weird. Avengers Mansion disappears and reappears, which is weird. And Iron Man flies to the scene to investigate and see what's going on. There's a force field around Avengers Mansion, and he's trying to get in. All of this is being broadcast. Peter Parker, in his apartment, is watching this and thinking, hey, maybe I should go down and help out. Ah, nah, screw it. Let the Fantastic Four deal with this. Let the Avengers. I don't need to. 
he's he's going to shirk it off. Harry Osborne comes in and yells at Peter about the TV being too loud and is just, you know, kind of snarky. <laughs> if, if you can't if you can't be a good roommate, then get out. Well, now Peter's being pissy. He's like, fine, you know what? I want to hit somebody. I'm going to go check this thing out after all. So the entire comic book, we have Peter just being a jerk because he's in a bad mood, which is kind of par for the course for 70s Spider-Man. This really feels like uh, this could have been a, a great story for Andrew Garfield to have played. Um, this is a part of Peter's personality that they used to lean into a lot more uh, in the comics. And sometimes I forget just how much of a crabby jerk he could be. <laughs> um, uh, but again, it was another thing that humanizes him to just, you know, call out that like when he's in a bad mood, he's 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 a bit of a bit of a, you know, curmudgeon. And, um, I, you know, I like the idea that uh, he's in such a bad mood. He's going to go suit up his Spidey and, and see if there's someone that is appropriate for him to uh, take his anger out on, um, <laughs> which doesn't seem very heroic on the face of it. Another thing that really kind of struck me was just, you know, how fantastical the stories in the 70s and 80s could be i mean it almost feels you know like some of the silver age uh, silliness of the 60s just things that are fantastically sci-fi and no one really questions it oh this is a building shaking in new york let's just go see what that's all about audiences gave a lot more leeway it was just okay here's what the story's about all right we'll run with that entertain us right whereas now the audiences are a little bit wait 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 i'm not going to be entertained until i understand exactly what the logic is here right yeah um, I, I definitely felt like the this story would would most likely not fly today but that's also part of what makes it so much fun and it's interesting to see how different both uh the peter parker of the MCU and the Tony Stark of the MCU are compared to the comic book versions from 1973. The Spider-Man may have been Andrew Garfield, but this Iron Man was definitely no Robert Downey Jr. He was more straight-laced, more of a stick in the mud. He was a little churlish as well. I think they opened up with, what are you doing here? I don't need your help. Oh yeah, you don't need my help. You're doing real good without me. And that's how they greet each other. Right off the bat, not the first time they've been in the same room together, but the first time that they've actually interacted with any... Uh, significance? Significance. Thank you. Now, what happens is uh, as soon as Spider-Man shows up, a, a hole is opened in the force field and they're pulled into an interdimensional portal, which is in between time. Sure. And they're recruited by Zarko, the Tomorrow Man, who has, who has a little bit of a beef with Kang the Conqueror. And he's uh, looking to recruit Spider-Man and Iron Man to help him break into Kang's Citadel. Right, in the 23rd century. Uh, Zarko, you know, feeds them a whole line about how his world was invaded by an invader from the future. And now he has to go uh, recruit heroes from the past to help. And whoever the mysterious invader is, and we've already said, you know, it's, it's Kang. It's Kang, yeah. Whoever the, the invader was um, had stolen all of the other Avengers, kidnapped all the other Avengers. And um, the uh, force field around Avengers Tower was placed there by Zarko to protect any other Avengers from getting kidnapped by our invader. Again, it's one of those things where Tony and Peter are told by this mysterious person that New York of the future is being invaded by a conqueror from even further in the future. And he needs their help to time travel into the 23rd century to save the day. 
And they they really are both just like on board right away. They're like, oh yeah, okay. I love the way uh, Ross Andrew draws their body language, like as as Zarco is telling them about this. I mean, they just look like they're on a city bus, just talking about sports or something. Yeah, seems legit. It's a funny contrast to um, to the MCU and whatnot. You know, when you think about. Iron Man and Spider-Man leave Earth, Infinity War, and it's a it's a big thing. And in this, Spider-Man and Iron Man leave Earth with just like almost no concern <laughs> for the implications of that or like how are they going to get back or, you know, in, in Infinity War, I mean, they, they, they have a whole discussion about the fact that like this is probably the end of their lives. Whereas in this comic, it's just sort of like, okay, 23rd century, let's go. I'm crabby. I'm still looking for someone to, to hit really hard. Um, so let's make that happen. To be fair, at this point in the Marvel comics, Peter has already been to different dimensions with Doctor Strange. Oh, for sure. So, I mean, it, it kind of is just a blase. The future? Okay, well, I've done weirder things. You said that Ross Andrew did the art for the book, and of course he did. Jerry Conway wrote it. But uh, what stuck out for me is that Everything looks like Ross Andrew drew it, except for Iron Man, who looked like Gene Colan drew it. I haven't been able to find anything that says that he came in and did some corrections, but it really looks that way because, I mean, that is just not the way that Andrew draws people or heads. Yeah, there's a few moments where the art seems almost a little warped. One of the things that I noticed, there's a couple of panels where it doesn't really look like he's being propelled by jet boots. I mean, it just sort of looks like he has... The power of flight, um, which always is kind of like a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting to see. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's so many Marvel artists who have a super distinct way of drawing different Marvel characters. I think drawing something like Marvel Team Up must be a really unique challenge because you have to draw all these different characters and maybe it's your first time drawing them. Also, one thing I noticed to my eye was an inker whose name I wasn't familiar with frank bowl um who as i did a little research turned out to be uh, a newspaper cartoonist for most of his career so you know maybe maybe um either ross andrew or frank bowl was looking at what uh, gene colin had been doing with iron man and and just decided to ape that style a little bit either way it is it is it is kind of visually interesting and and a little jarring it is and the way the story ended they get into the Citadel. Zarko reveals that now that he's in the Citadel, he's got Kang's tech and he can become the Conqueror himself. Kang is there and he kind of zaps both Iron Man and Spider-Man. Spider-Man's just paralyzed for a little bit. He eventually comes out of it. And the, the uh, issue number 10, which Iron Man is only in for a page or two, Iron Man says, yeah, well, that did something to my armor. I can't really move, so... Uh, have fun with that. Uh, it's all on you, Spider-Man. Friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, which is, again, completely opposite to right. how we see the two characters work in the MCU. Yes, two time travelers are warring for a lordship over the future, and we're in the 23rd century, and uh, yeah, you know, knock yourself out. What do you think? Was this the best way to introduce these characters? Could there have been a better introduction, or was this... You know, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's a very on brand introduction. It seems like most Marvel characters in the comics met each other just by randomly bumping into each other in New York and kind of um, being a little uh, annoyed with each other. There is a great line in this issue. When you said annoyed, it came to mind. 
when Spider-Man is attacking bad guys, or maybe it'd be better to say is being attacked by bad guys. Anyway, he says, lesson one, it's rude to try to kill someone. Lesson two, people get annoyed when someone is rude. Lesson three, annoyed people may also become rude. Lesson four, remember lesson three. It slightly predates the uh, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry line. But yeah, it's a very uh, on brand Spidey banter. It was an interesting introduction. It felt like, you know, there were two dudes who hung out at the same places and were familiar with each other who just never talked before. I mean, I suppose that's what it is, but I guess I'm used to different kind of crossovers now. It, it felt just weirdly anticlimactic, especially when Iron Man just said, well, uh, I've been zapped. Have fun right. dealing with the conquerors. <laughs> In some ways, I think it's really kind of fitting that um, Iron Man and Spider-Man met for the first time in Marvel Team-Up. Uh, one of the things I really felt strongly after seeing Homecoming was that, you know, Marvel Studios was really looking at Marvel team up when they were launching these things, because one of the most relevant ways that they've been able to answer the question of why do Peter Parker a third time is because this is the first time we've been able to do Peter Parker interacting with the larger Marvel universe. And, you know, the reason that Marvel back in the 70s made Marvel team up was to literally have Spider-Man interact with every hero. And he, he, in some ways, is kind of the ambassador of the Marvel Comics universe. I mean, he works with everybody. When I say works, I mean the story work. You have him team up with Doctor Strange and go to an alternate dimension, or you have him team up with Daredevil and take down, you know, drug traffickers. You know, everybody from the Punisher to Fing Fang Foom, it, it works. Um, and and that's really what I think you know these MCU films are. I mean, it's it's the cinematic version of Marvel Team Up. Um, so it's kind of a neat thing that that the first story that they met up with turned out to be uh, a Marvel Team Up. Well, there you go. All right, that is it for this episode of the Friendly Neighborhood Webhead Podcast. You can uh, find us on the internet. Anchor.fm slash Webhead Podcast is where we keep many of our episodes, as well as the ability to reach out to us with a voice message. Of course, you can find the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. We are there. You can tweet at us at Webhead Podcast over on Twitter. You can send us an email, cinemaspidey at mail.com. Or, you know, I mean, if you want to uh, send us a dove with a Note wrapped around its ankle, smoke signals, Morse code. We can receive all of that mental projections. Ethan's been practicing. For myself, I'm on Twitter at Eric Burnham. Ethan is at Ethan Colchimero, so please give us a follow as well. We have lots of important things to tell you about what we've eaten that day. Any parting thoughts, sir? No, I think um, I'm very excited to get to the next uh, half hour of this movie. Um, it's been a blast revisiting Tom Holland's first solo adventure. And just want to thank everybody again for tuning in. We will see you next time.